0: once you see this type of connectivity in complex systems, there will be surprise. I mean, there will be surprise things start to interact in ways so that we didn't fully foresee. Let me my
1: thing we have to do. Hi, this is Eric Pagli at the Rocket FM Studios in sunny Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for Episode 7 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. Here on Episode 7, we'll be hearing from Victor Galaz, an Associate Professor and Deputy Director of the Stockholm Resilience Center. He's a political scientist by training, expert on uh, global environmental governance and environmental change, climate change, and human health. Victor's also really interested in emerging technologies. He's looked for a long time at the role of IT in predicting and tracking uh, emerging diseases. On the phone line, we have Mark Vandenbosch. Mark, I was out for my morning walk today, and I walked by the entrance to the subway in the neighborhood here, and there was a bunch of teenagers giving out free samples of some sort of random product, uh, walking up to people trying to hand over a little bottle of something. Of course, I crossed the street and uh, kept my uh, social distance. But uh, I think it's pretty indicative of the situation here in Sweden, where it it still feels like the official numbers and the people's behavior are not congruent. There seems like there's a disconnect somehow.
2: Yes, but I think it's an interesting observation, symbolic of the strategy that has been embraced here in Sweden that continues to be talked about. We are doing things differently here. We had an expert in statistics who was on the podcast who actually talked about these curves. And at the time we had that interview, we talked about the differences between the different countries, how Denmark, for example, started to institute much more draconian steps, create more isolation. And at that time, the death rate was quite similar between all Nordic countries. And Denmark and Sweden actually had the same exact curves. And now what you see is that Norway and Denmark and Finland have curves that are sort of softening a little bit, the death rates increasing in very small increments. Whereas in the last week or so, Sweden is going straight
1: up. Sweden and Stockholm are really spiking at the moment. I think the total number of deaths in Sweden is twice as much as Finland, Norway, and Denmark combined. So certainly something they will have to keep a close eye on. But the experts seem like they're holding course. And uh, they were called out, or Sweden was called out last night by uh, Trump in a press conference uh, where he talked about the herd, the herd. <laughs> yeah, so Sweden being identified uh, by Trump and. By many others now, as a, certainly as an outlier in in terms of the response.
2: And you know, the truth is, it's too early to tell. It could be that in the short term this appears to be a poor strategy, but after a year has gone by, it could be that we'll have a much more stable environment here, and the other countries will continue to struggle with this. I don't know, but it's certainly in the short term a worrisome trend.
1: I think the short term long term uh, difference is what's going on here. Reading between the lines of some of the things that Anders Tegnell, the uh, state uh, epidemiologist, has said, I think that uh, he's thinking in terms of the next wave what happens in the autumn, and uh, I think herd immunity is, even though that's not a, an official government policy, I think there is some truth to that as in terms of characterizing how Sweden has uh, strategized this outbreak.
2: Right, and in order to achieve that, I've read that we need roughly two-thirds of the population infected, so to speak, and then uh, at that point uh, things would stabilize and the outbreak, anyway, locally it should start to die out.
1: One of the other things that have come up recently is Sweden. The Swedish government has uh, gained new uh, crisis powers. It was somewhat controversial uh, now that their decisions won't have to go through parliament. The Swedish parliament will have veto rights over these actions, but the government has taken on new powers to make decisions faster.
2: Yeah, and there's been some concern over that, of course, because people always fear that this is a slippery slope. However, I think within the Swedish context, uh, there's nothing to be overly concerned about. I think things will go back to normal when this is said and done, and I think it's a good move in the short term to curtail some of the delays in decisions that can take place when there's so many layers.
1: I mean, government authority seems to be one of the issues that Sweden has really valued, you know, basically keeping the democratic traditions and the Swedish uh, system in terms of letting experts uh, make a lot of the the key uh, decisions in this uh, crisis moment. Some of the more authoritarian countries are taking uh, somewhat different stances. I saw on the BBC uh, this morning about uh, Belarus. The president was interviewed wearing a hockey uniform, uh, saying, I don't see any viruses flying around, to you? And apparently the Belarusian uh, Football League is still playing games. And a lot of people around the world are actually starting to follow Belarusian football because it's basically the only live football out there.
2: Exactly. I think the mafia is pretty happy, too. They are able to take care of their illegal betting
1: Okay, Mark, let's now turn to Victor Galaz. He's an Associate Professor Deputy Director at the Stockholm Resilience Centre, one of the foremost institutions looking at global environmental change. And here in this interview, we talk about a number of topics related to the coronavirus pandemic, using Victor's insights into environmental change and the emergence of infectious diseases, and also the use of information technology and artificial intelligence for predicting and tracking and responding to epidemic outbreaks.
0: You should know from the beginning that the connection between these sort of disease outbreaks and the environment are quite complex. But what we do know is that some of these so-called zoonoses, so these are viruses that jump from animals to humans, are related to the fact that the habitats of of these animals are becoming smaller, humans expand into forests, there's agricultural intensification, uh, transport networks are being built, etc. And that increases the opportunities for these viruses to jump from an animal or two different animals and combine into into a new virus that jumps into humans and then start to diffuse through social contacts, transport networks, etc. In this particular case, it's still unknown to some regard what has happened. You do find this type of coronavirus in bats, but it's not totally sure whether there is an intermediate species in between that has allowed this to spread in humans, But I think you think in general, like if you look at this whole body of so-called stenosis, you would see that it is a combination of humans expanding into natural habitats that allows these sort of things to happen.
1: And you've seen this in previous outbreaks that you've researched, uh, like Ebola in West Africa and things like that, where humans being in close contact and perhaps eating um, certain species has allowed for these... Animal viruses to jump to human populations.
0: Yeah, I mean it could be like that. I think I think we shouldn't overestimate the role of eating. I mean there, there are other outbreaks that have other types of dynamics. So you can, for example, if you have deforestation, so suddenly the habitat of bat species decreases, and at the same time in another region you suddenly create a mango plantation, and of course the bats would move into that mango plantation and increase their interactions with humans through other animals. It could be pigs, it could be horses. And then suddenly you get a virus that jumps into humans. You, it actually is not fully linked to eating another species. could just be the, the fact that we're intermixing, we're, we're sharing the habitat with different animals. Some of them wild and some could be domestic. Even.
1: Okay, so Victor, you, you uh, edited a very uh, timely book that came out uh, shortly before the onset of the coronavirus crisis. It's called "A Global Challenges, Governance and Complexity. In the publisher's description of the book, uh, there's some lines that seem uh, very applicable to uh, help us make sense of the current situation. And I'll quote here. While it is clear what problems the world are dealing with, the solutions required to solve them has to embrace the features of complex systems to grasp the interwovenness of society, the biosphere, and technology. And it also says uh, how increased connectivity and complex system properties such as tipping points and networked risks pose new challenges to societal governance from local to global levels. So, uh, Victor, perhaps um, could you elaborate a bit on this and how some of these central ideas of the book can help us make sense of the coronavirus crisis and perhaps prepare us for the next pandemic?
0: Sure. I mean, I can give you a few parallels. I mean, the book doesn't have any particular chapter on pandemics, which probably should have had. But some of the things we do explore in this type of, of work is the fact that the world is becoming increasingly connected. So you see more and more of these connections through trade, information, people moving, etc. But then the fact that the ecosystems themselves, the biosphere, whether it's forests or the oceans or even the Earth system, is a complex system in itself. And on top of that, you add human behavior. Once you see this type of connectivity in complex systems, there will be surprise. I mean there will be surprise. Things start to interact in ways that we didn't fully foresee. So you, you, you see surprise and sometimes you see domino effects or you see cascades in effects through these networks. In that sense, understanding that we live in a world with those properties forces us to ask ourselves, okay, considering that we live in a world that had these properties where you see surprise, tipping points and domino effects. And lots and lots of uncertainties, how do we organize our societies and and policies to respond to it in a clever way? And there is not any clear cut answer to that. And I think the books explore that you you can look at this issue from multiple perspectives, whether it's sociology or law, political science, network analysis, etc. But I think the general challenge of trying to deal with an issue where you have so much uncertainty evolving, you have so many different risks where you can't quantify always what is going to happen and how to navigate them once you're in it. And in that regard, that's why I think the concepts and thinking around resilience is critical.
1: Okay, perhaps you can um, you can expand upon that as well, Victor. The the concept of resilience. You work at the Stockholm Resilience Center. You're the deputy director there. It's a term that's used in different contexts. So, from your perspective, as a as a political scientist and, a, and a, an environmental uh, a researcher, how do you understand and apply the concept of resilience, and how does it help us make sense of the coronavirus crisis? Sure.
0: I mean, so the fundamental of re- resilience thinking is the fact that that you're operating in complex systems. Take that for granted. And then the next step is to try to figure out, so what are the ways that you can operate in a way that you're able to deal with change and surprise? and either bounce back or renew yourself into something different and better. And I think that's exactly where we are at this stage with the COVID-19 pandemic. How do we navigate this very, very turbulent phase in a way that allows us to bounce back as quickly as possible and in the best case, change the way we operate in a way that's much more sustainable? I think that's exactly where the discussion is now at the moment. People, for example, suggesting that we can use this crisis as an opportunity to build resilience towards climate risks, for example. And to me, the concept of resilience is very, very important in that regard because it really acknowledges that the planet we live on is not fully predictable. And once things start to move, they could evolve As surprises, they could move very rapidly across sectors, and we need to have this flexibility and capacity to bounce back and then possibly, at the best case, renew ourselves
1: into something different. One of the ways that we try not to be surprised these days is by using information technology to try to forecast and perhaps uh, track and early warn against surprises, as you mentioned, like the emergence of the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 But you've worked for a long time on on this idea of using uh, IT to track and and predict uh, the emergence of exactly um, epidemics and such uh, outbreaks. How can you use IT to help make sense of this and perhaps to prepare for the next one? Because uh, certainly it seems like there will be further pandemics after this uh, COVID-19 outbreak.
0: Mm. What the World Health Organization has seen for the last two decades, I would say, is a different way of approaching and trying to get early warning about epidemic outbreaks. Before the 2000, the WHO was dependent on countries to report epidemic outbreaks. From the 2000 and forward, I think the WHO has set up a different type of monitoring systems that scans the web, scans the news items, uses email conversations between health experts to spot these early warning signals early and before you get formal reports from national governments. And that model has been quite In a sense, successful. I mean, it has been quicker than relying fully on national reporting. I think what we saw here for COVID-19 was the fact that the response was delayed, most of the reason being that the Chinese government was unable or didn't want to respond quickly enough. So there are limits to this type of model as well, of relying on more informal sources. I mean, you've probably seen there's been a few news items on a company in Canada that used AI, artificial intelligence, and managed to pick up early warnings about the COVID-19 epidemic quite early. But I mean, that, that sort of system needs to be responded to. So it's not just about getting an early warning. It's also an early response capacity. And I think in this particular case, the early response capacity was really not there was a delay and this allowed the epidemic to move much more quickly across borders. So I think we should, I think my general reflection would be that these early warning systems will become increasingly more sophisticated I mean you have more data uh, you have much more clever algorithms and you can use machine learning or deep learning but in the end you need to think about what are the, what's the early response capacity that matches that early warning? capacity and the early response capacity, it's not purely technological. I mean, there are a lot of political factors there. It's, it's things that we see now, for example, the are key lab, capacity, lab capacities, the number of doctors and nurses that you have, etc. Those are non-technological aspects that are just as important as the very sophisticated AI augmented early warning systems that we're building up.
1: Do these early warning systems then presuppose there's uh, openness on the Internet in terms of getting access to data and information from countries, as you mentioned, like China, that um, perhaps uh, are not so open when it comes to uh, access to the Internet and, and such things like that?
0: I mean, it has to do with local news reporting, for example. I mean, that's quite a reliable source of information. It, all, it has to do with the way uh, medical doctors are able to communicate. I mean, one of the earliest warnings, as it is at any actually a big epidemic outbreak, is from local doctors that start to share information and, and make others aware that something is is happening. So in general, just like information sharing and access to data, we will get better early warnings. But the question is, how do you respond to it in an effective way? And do you have the resources to respond to it?
1: I mean, in terms of the response, uh, the uh, AI augmented response or the uh, the IT uh, augmented response, in some of the countries that were more successful at flattening the curve and containing the coronavirus outbreak in the early days, uh, such as uh, South Korea and Taiwan, and Singapore, uh, do you see there, there being any downsides, any risks with this approach towards dealing with pandemics and other, and other issues as well in terms of possible implications for surveillance and for states being perhaps uh, a little too present in people's uh, private lives?
0: It's a bit too early to say, but of course, at the moment, there is a general discussion in this community that suddenly during this type of crisis, you, you ramp up mass surveillance methods, right? So once you do that, you have authorities, they're able to track, and they can even curb the spread of COVID-19. But of course, there is a, a trade-off and it could compromise privacy. Essentially, what you do is that you would track the day-to-day movement of citizens. And then you would use mobile data, for example, to check if people are compliant with With lockdown rules, for example, or or make sure that people are not moving where they should be moving. And you see this in in many countries around the world, actually, in South Korea, and Taiwan, but also in Israel, for example. I read an article last week at Moscow where the Moscow police was using facial recognition, enabled cameras to see whether some people were violating quarantine rules, etc. So, I mean, there is a, a concern in this community that these sort of crisis responses now that you ramp them up and that mass surveillance methods will remain there even after COVID-19. So how do you make sure that even though it might make sense to use them at this stage, that once the pandemic is over, that the data is not used for anything else, or that the methods are not used to track, for example, political opponents or something
1: else? If we zoom out now to the global level, or let's say the transnational level, do you see any analogs, any previous events that perhaps have any parallels to this in terms of the way that this is, obviously it's a global pandemic, this is the the quintessential global issue, but it's been a very much national response. Do you see any implications for um, for global governance and also any parallels, as I mentioned, uh, perhaps to something like the 2007-2008 food crisis when there was this global situation of of rising food prices and access to food? Countries started looking more inwards and closing off exports and things like that.
0: Again, it is, we're still sort of in the middle of this crisis space. And it is a bit early, but I think the COVID-19 pandemic shows the need for global cooperation. It's so clear that countries alone cannot deal with COVID-19, uh, not in the longer term, at least. And at the same time, how fragile global coordination and collaboration is, because what we're seeing at the moment are national responses that are not fully coordinated even though there is some information-sharing mechanism uh, through, for example, the World Health Organization. We will see... I mean, there has been issues, for example, within the European Union to get their collaboration going. And In the beginning, it was very, very fragmented what was happening, very conflicting to what the EU was actually supposed to be doing. But now, in the last weeks, seem to have been able to coordinate better. And I don't know, I mean, what the insights will be for the future from this. I mean, in the best case scenario, of course... We will come out from this recognizing that we live on the same planet. It's very connected and we need to build a capacity to deal with with surprises such as these in a better way. So how do we organize ourselves at the global level to prevent this from happening again or to mitigate it much faster, etc.? But I mean, another possible scenario would simply be we're not able to coordinate globally. So we need to build stronger national responses and not rely too much on, on a very weak world health organization.
1: The other global uh, crisis that people are starting to put the uh, coronavirus uh, outbreak into context with is uh, the climate crisis. Now, Victor, that's something obviously you've done a lot of work with uh, at the uh, Stockholm Resilience Centre, you and your colleagues there. How do you see these two major global events, one happening very rapidly, and especially the response happening very rapidly at this point? The other one been with us for quite a few years. We've been talking about it for quite a few years. There has been global action, but uh, certainly not enough. How do you sort of put these two uh, in context and how do you see solutions being um, convergent or divergent?
0: Not everyone would agree with me on this. The COVID-19 and the climate crisis are two very, very different types of crises. There there are some some overlaps, of course, being that it's a global issue. You need to tackle it globally. You need to listen to the science and, and, and act on the best available knowledge. And if we fail to cooperate in a good way, Those who are the weakest will be hardest hit. You know, the global south or weak communities, etc. So those things are in common, but essentially they are very different types of crises. Like the COVID-19 crisis, we see action that is immediate and you see individual responses that are immediate. It's something that you need to address on a daily basis, daily, monthly, and, and a year forward. The climate crisis is is slightly different. I mean, it it is something that we are seeing already now. We shouldn't forget that. But it requires responses that span over years and decades. And it requires deep changes in systems that we rely on, like food production, energy production, transport, uh, etc. So I think that there are quite different types of crises, and we should treat them as such. I think the only way in where they sort of overlap is twofold. I think one is in terms of how important the health sector is for both dealing with with this pandemic and future pandemics, and as part of climate adaptation strategies. Building and boosting resilient health systems will be important both for us to be able to deal with future pandemics and to adapt to climate change. I think that's one clear overlap that people don't talk a lot about. And then the second thing where you see much more discussion is whether we can use these economic stimulus packages that we're seeing now in EU and and, and in the U.S. in ways that would help us in the climate transition, right? Is there any way that we can use, for example, a new new green deal or a green reboot of the economy that would help us both make sure that people have jobs, that the economy is up and running, and help us transition into a more sustainable pathway? So there are two possible overlaps there. But in the end, I mean, you can't find a vaccination to deal with the climate crisis as you can do for COVID-19. So they're essentially two very different types of crises.
1: One final question, Victor. At this uh, junction, uh, what are your greatest concerns at the moment and what, uh, what hopes do you have at this point in the uh, coronavirus crisis?
0: My greatest concern, and since we still are early on from a global point of view, is what will happen in the global South. How this will hit the economies and the people and the health uh, in Latin America or Africa, etc. I think these are countries that are already struggling as it is and now have to deal with this devastating pandemic. I think that worries me a lot. They're just in the beginning of this crisis. What I would like to see in the discussion is how do we create a new green deal that includes the global south where you consider not only health aspects but the full span of the sustainable development goals so what are the investments that we need to have in place to make sure that people are safe they are healthy and that they are more resilient to what is to come in the future and that needs to be a global task we can't just leave small countries alone in this rebuild phase we need to do it together
1: Peter Galaz, Deputy Director of the Stockholm Museum Center. Thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast.
0: Thanks, Eric. Thanks a lot.